Hey there, it's Carla. And before we start today's podcast, I want to take a second to try and convince you to start your own ECE podcast. It is so rewarding for yourself as a podcaster, but also the benefits to the field and the people around you are exponential. So if you are thinking about it even just a little bit, I encourage you to join me in my free masterclass called The Six Key Decisions to Make Before Starting Your Own ECE Podcast. Head on over to elfoundations.com slash podcast masterclass and you can sign up for the day and time that works for you and I will walk you through those six key decisions to make before you even hit record. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Everything EC Podcast. I'm your host, Carla Ward, and joining me today is Beck Goodman. She is the owner of Grow With Beck, and today she's going to talk about how to build early literacy skills in a play-based, child-led environment. She's an experienced private educator for young children and uses play-based pedagogy to meet her students' academic and developmental needs, encouraging each child to be experimental, creative, and imaginative. And if you've been with me a while, you know that that is my love language, that and coffee. So I am so excited to have Beck on today to talk all about literacy. Welcome to the show, Beck. I am so grateful to have you on today to talk to us about early literacy. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure. So my name is Beck Goodman and I own a company called Grow With Beck. We're based in Manhattan um, in New York City. And we work both with families in a one-on-one setting, one-on-one between an educator and a child to promote early academic enrichment, focusing on early literacy for kids ages two through seven. And we also work on the school side of that, both by, uh, we have a Teachers Pay Teachers store where we provide worksheets and games, and we also build custom curriculums for preschools. Amazing. So what does that look like, a custom curriculum for a preschool, especially around early literacy? So it looks mostly like doing a lot of listening. One of the things that we find, particularly with schools here in New York City, is that parents are often saturated with choices, which is so wonderful. And that's because every school has a different culture and pedagogy and ethos and vibe and values and everything like that. And so one of the things that it looks like is coming in and asking the school, what are some things that you like? What are some things that you don't like? What are working really well right now for your teachers? And often it looks like looking at the curriculum they use maybe for their older grades, which for us, we would consider pre-K, but maybe in Canada, it's called junior kindergarten. So looking at what some of the more structured curriculum that they're using there and adapting that, adding in some elements that fit their school culture so that we really build a through line for their twos, their threes, their early fours, their pre-K, and then their kindergarten if they have a kindergarten program. Okay. So as a play-based educator, my mind's kind of like, okay, let's dive into that a little bit more because what would a curriculum look like for a two-year-old? can't imagine a two-year-old sitting learning their letters and sounds for, you know, 30 minutes. Yeah. Well, it does not look like that. 
because anyone who spent any time with a two-year-old knows that if it's not something they're engaged in doing, they're not going to do it. So 100%. our job is to create opportunities for intentional engagement that they will naturally be drawn to. Yeah. I mean, example looks like building print awareness, how to orient a book. And that means that when you're sitting at your very standard whole group uh, circle time to read a story is that the teacher sits up there and accidentally has the book upside down and backwards or is reading the words backwards. And it's like, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. Can anyone help me? Or just noting observations as you go saying, hey, I noticed that the A looks like this on this page and it looks like this on this page. Hey, same letter, it looks different. Moving right along. Those are opportunities for really rich and direct and explicit instruction in a very natural way that you're going to watch kids replicate on their own. They're going to sit down for independent reading time or when they find a book and they're going to joke around, hold it upside down, hold it backwards. Ha ha, can you help me? This is how you read it. And that's practicing. Oh my gosh, girl after my own heart right now, 100%. Because there is so much to be said about playing as an educator, because that's what you're doing, Mm -hmm. right? When you're being silly and you're making those silly mistakes, you are playing and then you're bringing it to the children and teaching it authentically. Love that example. Absolutely love it. So, okay. So you've given us one example of a perfect foundation is how to hold a book. Like, absolutely. What are some other foundational skills for the two and three-year-olds that they need before we get into those letters and sounds? So, and I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of research talking about phonological awareness. So it's, I mean, a huge buzzword right now, but also backed up with decades and decades of well-proven science. So there's no question about if phonological awareness is a key indicator towards future reading. And for the listeners who don't know, phonological awareness is the ability to manipulate sounds in language. It has nothing to do with looking at letters. It has nothing to do with writing. It's about really your auditory processing and your ability to manipulate those sounds. So very commonly for twos and threes, that's looking at at things like cat, hat, bat, sat. They all rhyme. For some children, that's just a naturally developing part of their language acquisition and their literacy foundation. For some children, they really benefit from explicit opportunities for instruction and practice in that. It really depends on the child. A well-rounded curriculum provides room for both. For the kids going to get it and for the kids who need support getting there. That's why we go to school. 100%. Yeah. So, I mean, it looks like that. And uh, it also looks very play-based. A big part of phonological awareness is blending sounds and segmenting sounds. So blending sounds is how you decode or sound outwards. Segmenting sounds is how you spell. So it would look like asking a child, hey, can you go get me the cup? I bet they're going to figure out it's cup. And they're going to go get you the cup. You were going to ask them to do it anyway. Or can you find my phone? Because we know I'm sure teachers are always losing their phone around the classrooms. You know, those are great opportunities for practice that is very easily, you know, applicable within the day, uh, but not sit it down at a worksheet. And oh my gosh, you've just, you've hit a bit of a sore spot for me in the sense of like, you're absolutely bang on because I'm not sure how it's working where you are for the older grades, but I am getting a huge number of grade twos, threes, fours who are struggling. I can't even say struggling to read 
but struggling to understand their phonics, which is now affecting their spelling, their ability to sound words out because they're missing the foundation. And a few years ago, phonics was removed from the curriculum. And what's fascinating is how much that foundation is needed and how much it affects even my grade eights when they can't find the patterns in words like hat, fat, sat, mat. The trickle effect is unbelievable because to your point, it's the auditory to the brain and it's making that association. And I'm so glad to hear that it's making a comeback. I have heard that phonics is making a comeback. I remember hearing a stat that someone said, well, you know, only 30% of the English language is phonetic. But if you don't know that C makes the cuss sound, well, that pretty much rules out every C word well, almost every C word in the dictionary, except for, you know, center and whatever else makes the soft C. But I really love that introducing of like, can you find my phone? Really emphasizing it because I'm sure you've seen it in the older age groups. I see it all the way up to my grade eights, even some of my high schoolers. Now, granted, they do have learning disabilities. That phonics is the foundation to learning. Totally, totally. Uh, I think one of the, and I, we see this here in U.S. schools, and I'm sure in schools up in Canada, one of the big flaws in our reading instruction is that we were not teaching the skills needed for students to transition to from reading for building fluency or responding to comprehension questions with vocabulary that they already have to reading to gain new knowledge or gain new vocabulary. When students see the word cat, a lot of times, a number of them will be able to read it from memory without knowing why it's spelled that way. Same things with words like stop or maybe even school or home or love is a great example. So many kids can read and write the word love because they do it all the time in their drawings and their cards. But that Word has a lot of hidden phonics rules in it, some irregularities, but also some things that are really important. Like, why is there an E after the V and it doesn't make the O say O? Why does it say uh? I mean, those are really, really complex rules. And what we're finding is that because kids don't have a strong foundation in engaging with the way letters work in words and in our language, they're not able to pull out new vocabulary because they're not able to sound out a word. You can't gain new knowledge from reading if you don't have the skills to navigate the the words. Yeah. All comes back to that foundation and that understanding, right? But I also think because so many of us went through the system, we didn't have that understanding. If you're an educator, you might have that understanding, but unless you actually sit down with the intention of learning to understand language, you as an educator might not know it either. Like I certainly didn't until I started tutoring. Yeah. No, I think, you know, we're going through kind of a national and international reckoning with our teacher preparation programs, our master's programs, certification programs that have all been promoting, you know, curriculum and methodology that was not backed by science. And we're, you know, finding has absolutely devastating long-term results for literacy rates and access to information now for an entire generation. And it's not the individual teachers to blame. I think there's a real, and this kind of calls into the question of like where teachers' roles are in a society, but teachers, like any other highly skilled profession, 
rely on a number of well-accredited, well-supported, you know, educational programs themselves. That's what makes the best teachers. And when those educational programs and accreditation programs are not providing accurate information, our highly skilled teachers are going to go back to their education and then they're not going to provide accurate information to their students. You know, so I think we see it all the time in various fields, right? Medical professionals used to recommend one thing and then we learned new information and now we recommend another. I think teachers are often viewed as like, how could they not know this? As if teachers don't also go through four years of undergrad, then a master's program, then an accreditation test, then interviews, you know? So well, lots of opportunity for growth and change. <laughs> yeah. Well, and my mind is spinning because I'm a huge play advocate. I'm a huge promoter of play. And certainly because of my tutoring background, I'm a huge promoter of phonics within the classroom. And certainly I do it naturally. But now I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like when I teach play, I'm, I need to make more of an effort to your point about the training of inserting phonics into how do you introduce that into your play program, right? Because I know how to do it because I do it, but I forget to teach it sometimes. So I'm like, Ooh, okay. A little bit of accountability as a trainer. And we certainly have to, to your point, back it up. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's so good. Awesome. Well, so what would you say are the stages to leading up to phonics? So flipping the book, having conversations, is there anything else that would support leading up before reading? A million things. So Phonics are the set of rules about how a written letter behaves within a word. Then we have to look at all of the pre-literacy skills or early literacy skills before a letter is introduced. I would consider all of those letters alphabetic knowledge skills, knowing that an A can say a or a or a, depending on where it is in a word, right? Those are all phonics skills. Before that, some ways to build it are, of course, embedding some of that in your language. So go get, you know, go sit in the hair care chair. You just modeled rhyming. They're going to go sit in the chair and they got an opportunity to hear it. Another great way to do it is, again, always to be, be silly. You put your glasses down and instead of saying, oh, I need to wear my glasses, you could say, I need to wear my glasses. In a formal academic setting, we would say that that was phonemic deletion or in substitution. You took out a sound, you put in a new sound. Very tricky to do, very important for identifying patterns in words and being able to spell and access new words, but done in a super silly way. They're going to say, it's not glasses, it's glasses. And they've just modeled it back to you. Then they're going to start doing it to be silly. Get me my pup, not my pup, my cup. It's rhyming, it's phonemic substitution, it's really important. When you're able to put language to what they're doing and just say, hey, you changed the beginning sound, they're gonna start being able to do that when asked. Mm-hmm. Can you change the beginning sound of star to make it you know, go vroom vroom and they're gonna go, oh, car. Again, they're practicing the same skills and they're doing it in a very natural way. So those are a couple of things, but really the, the thing that makes the best reader is an eager reader. That's, mm-hmm. I think, really the bottom line. And I talk to both my clients and schools all the time about this fear of becoming resistant to reading. And I think it's because it really resonates with a lot of us adults. Mm-hmm. And I, it resonates with me too. I was a very resistant reader. I had dyslexia. I did not receive 
appropriate reading services until I was nine. So I was a very late stage reader. And I had a lot of angst about reading because of that, because it was not a joyful confidence building activity for me. It was a really strenuous, sad, you know, really kind of depressing time for me. And so what I talk a lot about with families in school is that at the base of literacy is relationship building. And that's what it has to be. A book is, I see you nodding. We're on Zoom. I'm like, always, always, always. That, you know, that's what it is. That's the premise of storytelling is relationship building and communication. There's a great expression that says that, you know, a book can be two things. It can be a window or a mirror, a window to look at other people's experiences or a mirror to look at your own. And I think that is such a beautiful way to frame every opportunity for engagement. You know, you're reading the word, you know, bench. Okay, we read the word bench. Tell me about it. Where do you sit on benches? Oh my God, parks, me too. I love sitting on a good bench. Do you ever notice they have plaques on them? And it turns something that is skill-based into relationship building. And that's what really builds a strong, positive relationship with reading is knowing that, oh, I always remember sitting down reading with a loved adult in a way that made me feel connected and close and seen and understood. And I learned something new. Oh, yes. And that's, that's what reading does. If it's done with the relationship in mind, 100%. Totally. totally. Yes. Because... I mean, there's nothing more heartbreaking than going into a center where a teacher is trying to do circle time and to the best of their ability. But what keeps happening is they keep stopping the story. Sit down. It's story time. Like they're barking instructions at the child instead of going inwards and making the book more exciting. Mm -hmm. Like there's a great book called, and it's my absolute favorite to do in preschool and kindergarten, more kindergarten. And it's the book with no pictures. Oh, yeah. Right? It is such a great book. And it, the whole premise of it is that a book can be exciting, even though it doesn't have pictures, right? It's that segue into, it doesn't have to be pictures to be fun. And I mean, it's hysterical. And my students and I, I'm not joking. I probably read it 70 times in one school year. Yeah. Like, wow. and, and <laughs> all it was, oh, yeah. And all yeah. it was, was this relationship that we built and then it would become a conversation miss ward remember when you said boo-boo butts because that's a word in the book and so they're starting to engage and look at the words and try find it in other places and that relationship is so key and there was no telling the children you have to stop look and listen because i'm reading a story it's the book was so interesting and the delivery was so engaging and we connected with the book that it became fun and that relationship became key Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that there's a lot of, well, I was just gonna say, I really appreciate how the idea also that a child needs to sit still with their eyes focused, not moving, not talking. That's not relationship building. Kids are going to wiggle. They're going to, and embedding that into the story so that they really become a part of it, particularly for the younger ages. I mean, you think of something like you know, we're going on a bear hunt, right? And the just unbelievable opportunities for movement and active participation that really also serves as very effective behavior management in a whole group mm-hmm. setting. I mean, they need to be doing something yeah. always in a book. Oh yeah. Well, even songs like Down by the Bay, mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. is such a great one for rhyming and oh, the hello songs, like where you mess up the yeah. children's names, where you change the beginning sound. 
it just like they're also excited to hear each other's name so they're not waiting their turn they want to hear what you're gonna do with the name Carla or the name Beck so Mm -hmm. there's so much no that's awesome yeah no I you know what it's good to be reminded I think we all know this deep down that literacy does not have to be flashcards it doesn't have to be worksheets but sometimes we panic because we're so worried that everybody's going to be behind and we keep reading these stats about you know we've got children in high school that aren't able to read I mean I work with a grade 12 who legitimately struggles to Mm -hmm. read and has zero interest in it And part of what we're working on right now is like, we're working on stuff just to get the engagement up and the story. Right. Right. So you panic. So you introduce all these things like flashcards, but really we've got to bring it back to the fun. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, and this is something uh, kind of a hole that I, I see parents and caregivers in particular, because that's who I'm spending a lot of my time talking with about early literacy and early learning in general. But there is this real piece of miseducation amongst us grownups. That is that if I say to you, what letter is this? That is me teaching you something. That was a learning opportunity. That is not, that's an assessment. You are assessing their current knowledge and that's important. You need to know where a child falls. But when do you assess? I would say you assess, if you're playing with that kid every day, you assess maybe with one time, one Mm -hmm. time during that time. You assess a particular skill. Everything else should be instructional, which involves you in modeling how to do the work, you doing the work with the child, the child attempting to do the work independently, and then you can assess. So in a play-based setting, it might look like, oh gosh, let's do this puzzle together. Can you hand me the letter that says, ah, it's over here. This is the one. Oh my God, this one says, ah, thank you so much. Oh, you know what? I need that letter that says, ah, again, it's the one that has a circle and a line going down. It looks like this, ah, oh yeah, touch it like that. Mm -hmm. It's the red one. Thank you so much. Oh, look, I got the, ah, I found it. Here's the, ah, it's over here. And then you can say, oh, which one do you need? And the child will say, I need the one that says, ah, because you just provided five or six or seven opportunities where you demonstrated to them what it looked like, what it felt like, what it sounded like. Mm-hmm. Maybe something notable about it or a piece of connection. Oh, it says, ah, like an Adam. It's your letter. That's so cool. And then they're able to reflect it back to you. It was not a series of question, 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 which who wants to do that? No. And I heard a great joke <laughs> once is when we keep asking children, what's this, what's that? Eventually they're going to be like, don't you know? Like, right. are you supposed to know this? Right. <laughs> and it builds anxiety. Like I've had so many children that tell me like it makes them nervous when somebody keeps asking them questions. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a, you know, as an educator, one of the things that I feel so strongly about building, especially for our our young ones, is a lot of self-advocacy skills in an academic setting. One is working with their parents to make sure the parents are guarding the child's capacity You know, I've had the very unfortunate experience of meeting four-year-olds who were burnt out. They were already, but they're tired. It's not that they need help with this or that they don't know that they're exhausted. I think there's the parent component of that. And then there's the child component of that. And schools as well, who are, have a really rigorous adult-led schedule. It's exhausting for kids. They're not going to thrive. They need child-led open-ended time. That's the most impactful. But for the 
children of the experience, something that I run into all the time is when we are doing that moment of assessment or we are doing that moment of them working independently or initiating a skill that I can come in and support is an immediate, I don't know, or I can't do that. And I always follow that up with some inquiry. Oh, well, what do you think would be most helpful for you? Would you like me to say it again? Or would you like me to help you start? And children, they identify what's most helpful. And a lot of the times they say, could you say it again, please? And I'm like, what a better way to respond than I don't know. Let's keep practicing saying that. And pretty soon you'll see that they naturally, instead of saying, I don't know where I can, they'll say, could you repeat that? Yeah. I mean, what an awesome skill to build in our kids. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. Cause you're giving them the tool, right? Because I mean, how often have we heard, I don't know. And then somebody responds with, well, we just did it. Right. That's not helpful because nobody wakes up in the morning, not wanting to know the answer to a question. Totally. And for a, for a child who's very aware of the experience that they are a child. I know sometimes when you're talking to the three-year-old and they're insisting that they can do it themselves, you kind of sit back and you're like, do you know, do you know that you can't? Or are we, are we playing this game? But I think for children, the majority, a lot of the time, you know, they experience a lot of no's and a lot of they needs helps and a lot of they're not doing it right. They're very aware that the grownups know how and they don't. And I watch a lot of grownups doing puzzles with children, which is not inherently literacy based. I mean, there's obviously like the kind of visual reasoning and visual working memory component to it. But I think it is such a great insight into what this instructional time looks like. Because ultimately a puzzle, again, is very instructional. It's problem solving. And I sit and I watch a child take a piece and be like, you know, put it in a million places, maybe orient it, flip it upside down, turn it around. And there's a clear, obvious answer, but they're struggling to find it or it appears clear and obvious to us grownups. And they go, I don't know what to do. And the grownup is sitting there being like, no, turn it and put it on the corner. Just turn it and put it right there. That's where it goes. See, just put it right here. How frustrating is that? If my, if my partner, if when I was struggling with a task, like, oh, I couldn't, you know, figure out how to put the things in the fridge came up to me and goes, just do it this way. Come on. It was right there. <laughs> I mean, we have to move into a two bedroom. That's what I'd say about that. You know, yeah. it would be so frustrating to me. It would be so demoralizing and it's really patronizing. Okay, I got it. It was so simple. Why don't you just do the puzzle then? Is really how I think children often respond. It, it creates frustration mm -hmm. because they're being told that something was so easy and so obvious. I think a better way to reframe that is to model, again, this is the adult actually doing the teaching in a play-based scenario, is for the grown-up to model what skill it is the kid is missing. Maybe that skill is, Oh, you're really frustrated. Would you like me to take a turn? Okay, great. Then the grown-up takes the piece and looks down and goes, oh, I see on this puzzle piece that there is a sun on it. Where else is there a sun on the puzzle? Huh, let me find it. That is modeling. The child will then do the same thing because mm -hmm. you're providing an opportunity for them to do, or for you as an adult to demonstrate struggle, demonstrate frustration. You take that piece, you turn it a million times and never have it lined up and go, oh, frustrating. I'm going to take a break. Your turn. Mm -hmm. And yeah. have that back and forth. 
that's a way more impactful and positive way to take a moment of struggle and frustration instead of just giving them the answer and telling them that it was easy. It wasn't easy. That's why they were struggling with it. Modeling what it is that they're not doing. And that takes a lot of detective work from the grown-up side to say, why are you not figuring this out? But that's our load to bear as the grown-ups who are supposed to be teaching them. Oh, yes. Patience. I mean, there is no doubt that we have to have patience when we are working with little ones. I mean, even as a tutor, there's nothing more frustrating than hearing a child go, ka-a-ta, ka-a-ta, frog. Oh. And you're like, you're joking me right now. Right. But it's part of the learning. You're like, hmm, let's break this down again. You have to take three deep breaths. But even to the point with the puzzle, right? If we just go ahead and say, well, it's cat. Or we go ahead and say, well, the puzzle goes here. We're not teaching them anything. All we're doing is showing them, I know it, you don't. Right, right. I love this. Oh, any other gems in your back pocket that early childhood educators can take back to their classrooms today and start sprinkling literacy dust on? I would say the other, you know, important way to frame early literacy is through the opportunity of storytelling. That is what it is. Dramatic play is a literacy activity. It is. You're doing it already. Another, a couple of other great ways to do it in a one-on-one small group or whole group setting is to build stories. In my sessions with students, for the very little ones who are three and are still developing their understanding of language, we do what's called a one-thought story. I start with the ball and I say, once upon a time, there was a dragon and I hand the ball to the student and they continue it. And the dragon had a tummy ache and they give the ball back to me. And the dragon went to his mom and said, can you help me give the ball back? We are taking turns. We're storytelling collaboratively. It really also, what a great way to build listening skills. Because when I said during my turn that the dragon's name was Debbie and you say, and then the the dragon Jack, I'll be like, what? what was the dragon's name can we remember mm-hmm. that is a comprehension activity for older kids this it gets really tricky for four and five-year-olds but in a, in a fun very silly way do a one thought a one word story i say once you say upon i say a you say time there you was a you know and we go back and forth we're building a story together that's building the understanding of syntax and grammar it's be, building Beginning, middle, end, conflict, solution, we're, you know, um, auditory working memory. I could go on. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm excited. <laughs> you know, but those are ways to engage a child in a story. And then when you move into a written story of a book or a passage that you're reading, you can model drawing the connection. Hey, do you remember in our story, we said first, then next, last? We're seeing that same structure over here. First, then next, last. I wonder if that's a common way of providing order. Okay. You know, those are opportunities for a variety of different types of engagement that can easily be kind of differentiated depending on the skill level of your class. If you need a try, if you have a child who needs a sentence, sentence stem, give it to them. If you have a child who could only do one word, they have to do the one tricky word. I mean, it the, the possibilities are endless. It's great for times of transition, for snack time, for while you're waiting for kids to come over, it can be done in 20 minutes. It can be done in two minutes. So that is one thing that I'd love to see more of is children engaging in structured, intentional story t- storytelling of their own. I love it. And it builds, builds that love of literacy. 
right? Because literacy is everywhere. We cannot escape it. It is going to be with them from birth till the end of time. Mm -hmm. And why not enjoy it? Right. Why And and not shy away from it. There's no reason to be afraid to introduce these things to young children. Because it it is play-based. It is inherently fun. It is relationship building. And if they don't like it, they won't do it. No. And there's nothing more heartbreaking than adults saying, why don't like reading? And you're like, but you're missing out on so much and they don't know and they don't care. And I get it because they're guarding their heart and I get it. But if we can, you know, open that possibility at a young age, because we know that those first five years is where all our foundational skills come from. We are giving an adult a gift. Uh Uh-huh. No, absolutely. And I think we need to provide also just so much more grace and kind of openness about what reading is. Because I was always a grown-up who up until about three years ago, I did not like to read. I did not read. I would not read. I mean, beyond a menu or a text, I even voice memo, I was resistant to it. And one, it was not functional to my Mm day-to-day for one. It limited my opportunities because I told myself, oh, well, I can't write a curriculum because I don't like reading and writing, even though I'm a reading specialist. (laughs) So it's limiting. But the other thing is what I discovered was a world of audiobooks. I am now an audiobook junkie. And that is just as impactful literacy as sitting down with a physical book, except one I can do on the subway while walking, hopping into a cab, you know, and it's a little lighter weight. So I'm a huge, I consider myself a huge reader now, even though I might read, I might listen to 50 audiobooks a year and only read six physical books. Before I would look at that and say, I don't read a lot. No, I read and engage with reading and storytelling all the time, constantly through my day and my work, but now for pleasure. Love that. And one thing I've noticed, the more and more I do this podcast, so we're heading into our third year. And one thing I've noticed about so many specialists that come on the show, myself included, we have become the people that we needed when we were children. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I just find that so amazing because if you did struggle as a child, you've now created a curriculum that makes it so impactful so that children don't have to feel that resentment towards reading and the world needs that. It, there, there is no harm that comes from a more literate, engaged population. You know, there is just, it's, it's one of those few things in life where there's literally no downside to it. Agreed. Yeah. Love it. So love to do more of it. Yeah. <laughs> Beck, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people connect with you further and learn more from you? Yes. Uh, well, I've had so much fun. I can't wait. I'm about to snuggle up with a book after this. Now I'm like all revved up. But you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok at Grow With Beck. You can also, that's our website, info at growwithbeck.com is our email address. And we're on, everything is under that name. So threads, YouTube shorts, we're all in the same place. Teachers pay teachers. I'll grow with Beck. Love it. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me.